2: Today, we're going to discuss uh, the history of slave revolts and maroon societies in the United States and their legacy. Their very important, but often neglected legacy for contemporary debates, challenges, and opportunities in our democracy. Uh, We have with us uh, today one of the foremost scholars of this subject, uh, a wonderful colleague and and good friend here at the University of Texas, uh, Professor Dinah Berry. Good morning, Dinah. Good morning, Jeremy. Dinah is the Oliver Radke Regents Professor of History and the Chair of the History Department at the University of Texas at Austin. She's received numerous uh, awards. Um, She's most famous for being one of the leading scholars of the enslaved, of the experience of slavery in American history, and in particular, the role of women uh, in the history of slavery and slavery's legacy in American history. She's the author of numerous books and articles, uh, Some of my favorites, uh, her first book, Swing the Sickle for the Harvest is Ripe, which is a wonderful title. Uh, It's on gender and slavery in antebellum Georgia uh, and actually has renewed relevance, I think, for understanding voting issues in Georgia today. She wrote another award-winning book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. Another fantastic title. Dinah, we need to get you to write titles for everyone's (laughs) books. Uh, The Value of the Enslaved, From Wound to Grave in the Building of a Nation. It's a really extraordinary book that examines the economic history of slavery in many ways and the ways in which slave bodies were valued by the economic market, a real critique of capitalism in many ways and how capitalism uh, commodified human bodies and and paid people actually for their brutality. It's, it's a really uh, harrowing and eye-opening book. And then most recently, uh, a book she co-wrote with uh, Kali Gross a Black Women's History of the United States, which really rethinks American history from the perspective of African-American women who have often been left out in most histories and most uh, political moments. Uh, Dinah, it's really wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting
1: me. It's a pleasure.
2: Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Dinah Berry, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary Series' scene-setting poem. What is the title of your poem
0: today? One You Have Not Heard. Let's hear from one we have not heard. The image of a black teenager standing on a car, maybe a patrol car, surrounded by a crowd, maybe a mob, screaming with despair, maybe anger, remembering a police van, maybe the prison cell. The image of a black man standing on a makeshift home, maybe fortress, in a bog or a swamp forest in the center of Jamaica, maybe South Carolina, surrounded by a crowd, maybe a society, remembering a plantation maybe the slave ship. The image of a black crowd marching with torches, maybe just where they marched with torches, on ground shrouded in a mist beneath darkness with the tools they used to till the fields, maybe to break their backs. Speaking a language, maybe one that makes you squirm. Writing a story, maybe one that you have never been told. The image of a black woman sitting in a rocking chair, maybe a throne, on a porch beneath a lamp in a swamp on an island, maybe now a golf course, speaking a language, maybe one you cannot understand, telling a story, maybe one you have not heard. Wow!
2: It's very moving, Zachary. Powerful. It is. It is.
0: What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about uh, the ways in which uh, maroon societies and, and Black resistance to slavery uh, have played in American history, but also the ways in which that history has been swept under the rug and, and not told, uh, and, and the ways in which our fear of Black resistance has also shaped our institutions just as much.
2: Very well said. Dinah, building on on this powerful statement from Zachary, um, how common was Black resistance to slavery in early America? And and how would you describe its effects on the development of American institutions and and other institutions in in the Atlantic world?
1: Well, first of all, I wanted to to just say I I had to mute my mic because I knew I was going to sound like the call and response of a a Black church (laughs) um, while I was listening to him because I I was grunting and moaning and and making sounds while he was sharing that beautiful piece. So thank you so much for that. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate it. And and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the connections today. But Blacks resisted at every moment of enslavement. Um, And I think that's a very simplistic statement for me to begin with, but it's something that was very, very common from the moment that Africans were captured in their communities to the moments that they were transferred to the coastline. Uh, even when they were put on ships, they resisted then, they re- they resisted during the forced travel to, you know, New World Plantation communities. And they resisted even when they got off those ships and were put on auction blocks to be sold. So I think the first thing is just to think about the resistance was always here. It was here from the moment of capture. And how did that shape the ways in which early America was formed? One way to understand that is to look at the legislation and to look at some of the codes that governed enslavement in the United States, but also these codes were most often, they came from examples from the Caribbean, um, examples from Barbados, when they established the slave code in the 1660s. Um, and th- these codes were called, titled like an act for the better Ordering and governing of quote unquote Negroes. And in this case, you know, enslavers had the right to do and the authority to do what they wanted to enslave people. They could punish them for minor offenses. Um, they were chastised, whipped, branded. They were cut. Um, they they could legally cripple them. S- sometimes they were set on fire and they, they could murder their enslaved people without much consequence. You know, I would say that this happened because enslaved people were resisting. And there's a there's a struggle between enslavers and the enslaved and the enslaved pushing for for freedom for liberty for the right to be treated as a human being and one of the ways as I mentioned you can find this is through legislation
0: so what is a maroon society that's that's one of the topics we wanted to touch on in this podcast it, it's something that we don't really talk about in the context of American history very much but it seems to have played an important role at least in 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 developing the institutions that shaped uh, American society for a long time?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, maroon societies were essentially independent communities where what I would call self-liberated enslaved people um, developed in order to live in isolation and freedom. Um, they were often secluded places like mountainous regions, uh, rainforests in the Caribbean, uh, in the United States, woods, uh, caves. Uh, the Dismal Swamp was one of the major uh, places where we know often South Carolina and Georgia, coastal regions where the Sea Islands were, they would live in places where they could live in isolation. Sometimes these places were close enough to plantations where they could raid them for food and also probably to get more um, individuals to come and live with them in these isolated communities. The origin of this, this term maroon comes from a French word that was derived from the Spanish word cimarron. And it has um, Amerindian roots, and we know that there were these types of communities in places like Brazil called Quilombos, and they lived in what what many scholars refer to as quote-unquote inaccessible areas. But when you look at the experience from the enslaved, they talk about how they felt more comfortable in the swamps. They felt more comfortable living amongst snakes and alligators than they did their enslavers.
2: So, Dinah, how do you think about uh, the development of American democracy uh, in this early period with such a presence of brutality? and inhumanity? Uh, how do we think about a, a figure like Thomas Jefferson, who's endlessly fascinating because of his his writings about the importance of democracy and what we would today call human rights, but yet at the same time, his participation, uh, his encouragement in some ways of the very system that you're describing?
1: Well, that's a great question. You know, One of the things that we see is that if you look at this history and we're connecting the history of Maroons and Maroon societies to early American democracy, The example, most enslavers in South Carolina and Georgia, in particular, in the colonial regions, had plantations in the Caribbean. They were referred to as absentee owners. And they had to negotiate treaties um, with, like in Jamaica, Nanny the Maroon, you may have heard of her. She's today a national hero in Jamaica. But they negotiated treaties with the British government to maintain control of a a particular space and place in the mountains um, they established maps and boundary lines and negotiated this after years of guerrilla warfare to establish a space of freedom and independence. And I think that if you think about the development of maroon communities and you think about the negotiations that took place between you know the British government and runaway enslaved people or self-liberated enslaved people, that sets a tone for understanding negotiations about what is democracy here in this nation. And how enslaved people, despite being placed on the outside of that space, outside of democracy, tried to find ways to push for their humanity to be recognized.
2: Were they successful? I mean, obviously, it, it it took far too long for us to begin to grapple with slavery, and we still grapple with slavery as a society. But do you see evidence that, in a sense, the powerless slaves and, and maroon societies were able to actually exert significant influence on the development of American democracy?
1: Yes and no. I mean, one, I think I would say yes, because they forced people, they forced those at the time to recognize them for those places where there were uh, treaties. They were forced to be recognized. Um, But on the other hand, it also questioned the notion of black humanity and the fact that we have constantly changing slave codes in the United States, 1793, again in 1850. um, you, You can look at any law and legislation for a particular community to see how black people were governed And that tells you a lot about how Blacks were resisting and and pushing for the right to be treated as human beings.
2: The development of abolitionism and efforts by some non-Black communities to uh, try to speak on behalf and argue for the interests of slaves and uh, maroon societies, where do you see that coming from?
1: I think abolitionism as the movement, there's, there's a couple ways. I mean, I, I think about it broadly. One, for me, I think about the desire for civil rights as starting, you know, as early as the moment that Black people arrived here. I don't think, I don't look at, for me, because I'm a scholar, of the enslaved and a scholar of slavery, you know, I go all the way back to evidence of people fighting for their rights. And so I think about it much more broadly than the modern civil rights movement that we talk about when we look at the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. But when you think about abolitionism there's an organized movement that really takes off you know it begins in, at, around the American revolutionary generation but it really takes off in the 1830s 1840s in terms of the organized movement of abolitionism but as you know many scholars argue there's there's an, there are efforts of abolitionism that come before the organized movement and i would argue that some of those efforts involve rebellions uprisings like you know the Gabriel Prosser rebellion the German coast uprising in 1811, you know, Denmark, VC Nat Turner, all of those to me are evidence of, of Black rebellion that is pushing for the abolition and end of slavery.
2: And I think that really uh, brilliantly takes us into some of the contemporary issues. The, the one other question I wanted to ask before we get to the contemporary connections is, is the reaction to uh, African-American uh, revolts, the Reaction to assertions of independence and freedom, uh, with the rise of groups like the Ku Klux Klan, do you see that also as as part and parcel of this long history, or or how do you understand these, shall we say, white militia groups uh, that seem to be pervasive through American society in response to slavery?
1: Well, I think that's a great question. We find that that th- these resistance groups are here because. They're not necessarily understanding that Blacks, they don't understand, they don't, they're not thinking about it from the perspective of African Americans that are fighting um, for their individual rights. And part of that is because they didn't look at African Americans as being part of the democracy, right? To be, to have a place and a right to vote, to treat them as citizens. So when you think about Black freedom during slavery, often what people talked about was they couldn't imagine life. With with black people being free, so there was a push for colonization, right? Sending them to parts of Liberia and West Africa. There was a push to send them when when a person was freed, they had to leave the state within or the or the colony within six months. And so there's this notion of how do we deal with the free black problem, and how do we deal with African Americans as citizens of the same rights? And I think that's one of the challenges when we when we try to make these connections to today is to understand. That there's always been a notion of of black people being a different class, and the notion of how black people arrived in this country.
0: So we often talk about abolitionists and uh, and, and and sometimes uh, black resistance to slavery in the nineteenth century as precursors to the civil rights movement and black activism today. Where does where where does early black resistance in the form of of slave revolts, rebellions, and, and maroon societies fit into this story?
1: I actually think it, we should look at it as a continuum. And I've said this before. I think we should see this as activism in every period of U.S. history. And we can learn from understanding some of the claims for, for the rights that we saw during slavery. Often, unfortunately, are similar claims that you see today. Although they were, they were during slavery, African Americans were trying to be treated as not only equal citizens, but just being able to live in freedom. You see some of the, the challenges today where, and the lessons for today is that there's just a long history of fighting to be treated as citizens, to, to have their rights protected and respected. We, we see African-Americans in every moment trying to prove their citizenship and prove that they consider themselves as just as American as anybody else and wanting to participate in our democracy.
2: And Dinah, do you see a similar continuum among those who oppose um, many civil rights advances and those who question the rights of African-Americans to vote and those who often defend violence toward uh, African-American bodies and groups in our societies, Uh, do do you see that as a continuum with the past as well?
1: I do. I do. And I think that um, that is probably the most sad reality of what what we're witnessing and facing today is that some of the same language is being used that we saw during the civil rights movement. That same language that we see now is, was used during slavery. I mean, I'm not trying to jump from 100 years to, you know, to another 100 years. But oftentimes what you see is African-Americans wanting to be free and to have a fair trial. Like you, you'll hear this, you know, the jury of their peers. Oftentimes that's, that wasn't the case historically. Even even in the early uh, Caribbean period of slavery, revolts where they'd say, "Well, if, if they took an enslaved person to trial, they'd have a, a jury of twelve men of their peers. They were never their peers. They didn't have other enslaved people. Couldn't testify." Right. So now we find blacks fighting for justice. Right. I mean, they're looking for. They're going to continue to protest until justice is done, until justice is served, until people are treated equally, until our rights aren't being compromised and taken away, and legislation is not being changed. To disenfranchise people of color. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is, Donna? I know this is a hard and, and difficult question, but but you're the you're the the best person probably in the world to answer it. Why, why do you think it is that um, this uh, shall we say resistance to full African American participation, even to somewhat equal participation? Why why has it been so hard? Why why is there such a strong continuity? of resistance? Is it, is it just racism toward black men and black women, or is there something deeper?
1: You know, that's a good question. I think if you were to ask people that were against, you know, people that were trying to curtail voting rights, they would never admit that that's what the base of some of this is discrimination. Um, I think some of it is, is a disrespect and a lack of respect for, for marginalized communities. Um, I mean, even, even, you look at folks that, have, that are incarcerated that get out, right? That are released, their voting rights are marginalized, right? People that commit felonies are, are having a difficult time. Many places are not able to vote, right? So they're disenfranchised. Um, so there's like a public stain that's a permanent stain, and there's there's laws and legislation now, and there's some some places are trying to to lift those kinds of um, restrictions, but I think part of it does come from Going all the way back to not seeing certain groups of people as equal and having the right to the same level of citizenship and activism and participation in society.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, 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 watching you know these horrible examples almost day after day of the mistreatment of Black Americans and other marginal communities. Most recently, of course, the the. the terrible shooting of this 20-year-old boy mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, just out to 10 miles from where George Floyd, mm-hmm. um, the person who killed George Floyd is being tried. Um, it, one has to wonder, Dinah, is, is there a, a fear of, of black bodies that, that seems to be built into the historical experience of the United States, that it's it's not just a belief that a certain group has fewer rights or should have less access to our democracy, but something even maybe deeper this sort of fear of of African American men and and various other parts of the ways in which groups try to participate in our society and are seen as threatening to those who are uncomfortable with their participation.
1: I think absolutely I mean there's been a continuous fear of of African Americans um, men and women I mean I think the the response that we've seen, to black life has been, from my perspective, has been difficult to watch. I actually haven't been able to watch the news much this week. Uh, I feel like we've been here so many times and we see the the response when we talk about law enforcement is supposed to be de-escalation, right? But often when I look at tapes, if I can tolerate them, I'm seeing a complete escalation where they're yelling they're they're they they come to some of these these stops, these pullovers, whatever you know these encounters already charged up um the language that you see people using um, when they see a black person in a car or a vehicle or walking or running or jogging all these different i mean these, all these different lives that have been taken um unjustly unjustly, I think there's something about a threat, you know, and I, I mean, as as a mother, as I've talked about this before, but as a mother of a young black teenager, you know, the older the older he gets, the more I worry. You know, he, you know, when he starts driving, you know, what's going to happen when he's pulled over? You know, even I've seen we've seen even videos this week where you know a black military officer is in his vehicle and hands are up and out of the car and out of the vehicle, and because he doesn't open the door, or get out, you know, he's pepper sprayed. You know, I just feel like those kinds of responses to African-American men and women is very frightening. And I don't know when this is going to (laughs) end and it feels very familiar. It's just more modern. As a scholar of slavery, this is very familiar. It's just a modern form of the types of abuses that I witnessed and that I write about, that I read about, that I study uh, for the institution of slavery.
0: Why have we uh, forgotten those parallels? It, it seems almost as if we've deliberately forgotten the history of, uh, of black resistance and, and
1: maroon societies in the United States. You know, it's interesting. I don't know that we've forgotten. I just don't think people know about it. I don't think it's so much about forgotten. I think that, that um, people don't know, your average American has probably never heard of a maroon society. And if they have, they probably assume that there were none in the United States. But Sylvia Dioff talks about this, about um, maroon societies in the United States. I think there were a number of them in Texas because of the, the forest part areas that we have here. And we also have um, lots of caves that we know enslaved people lived in and went to and escaped to. I think it's more of a lack of knowledge than a, somebody forgetting this. You don't. It's not like it's something that's often taught, even in our K-12 through 12 textbooks. It's not something that most students don't learn about black resistance to slavery and um, even the presence of maroon communities until college. Although there are a number of teachers nationwide that I've had the pleasure to interact with that are really doing some dynamic things in the classroom, but it's just not common knowledge. And
2: and I'm always struck, Dinah, that there are forces, particularly in in, uh, the state of Texas, but many other states as well, that actually are, are opposed to the teaching. Of this material, and and do you see that as as actually trying to create or encourage an ignorance of these issues, which of course therefore has a political connection to some of what we're seeing today? That if we don't know this history, we're less likely to recognize the horrors around us. Is 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 that part of what's going on? You think, or is that is that is that too over the top?
1: No, that's part of it. But the other part of it is that the the, the people that are often preventing and that are on on the board of education and in different States, they weren't taught this history. So they'll say that's, they don't think it's, it's real. They don't think it's true because they didn't learn it this way. And so we have to get in at some point to educate And despite the fact that, well, this is not the history I learned, or this is not how I learned it. And I always, I'm always talking, and I know, you know, this Jeremy, that, you know, history is so much, we learn so much more when new records come available when right. other papers are donated to archives or uh, a special way of understanding or or, we, or a modern technology is applied to uh, a resource from the past that we couldn't get access to, gain access to. And the facts of history are, are often the same, but it's just that we have more detailed understanding of that history now. And I think to tell those folks that are saying, I didn't learn it this way or this wasn't part of the story, It's like, yes, it was. And this is what we know now. And let's look at the primary records, the documents that we have to tell this history and revise the history to include the most up-to-date current understandings from trained scholars who are in the archives. So I think that's part of it. And the other part is just to maintain an ignorance to not empower people to know the past. And and I mean, for instance, a number of African American history books, including my books, are not allowed in many, in many uh, prisons. They're banned from prisons. And some of these books are books about African American history. There's, a, there's something about not wanting people to learn the history because they're worried about, I think, contemporary rebellion.
2: Right, right. That's astonishing. I didn't know that, Dinah. I, 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 having having read at least the three books of yours that I <laughs> mentioned, I, I would actually think prisoners should read them. They would better understand their own history and and and, and the world they've they've been stuck in in yeah. many ways. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's why people don't want them to 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 read those books. You know, it, it seems to me, and your work shows this so well that um, if we do understand this history, we recognize that. Many of the behaviors uh, that we see, the atrocities that are committed within our own society, the deviations from the democracy we want to have, they're not just a few bad apples that that, that it's a systemic mm-hmm. problem. yes. Um, how, how do you think about how do you talk about those issues?
1: Oh, well, it is a systemic problem. And I think one way to well, I, well, how I teach it is to sort of move through history. And I—that's why I talk start off today talking about legislation because I think you can understand so much about a society when you look at the laws that were put in place to govern that society. And when I when I read some of like the 1705 Virginia slave code, you know, students are astonished um, by the restrictions placed upon um, and the distinctions between indentured servants and enslaved people. When we look at even different counties or communities like Savannah, we look at some of the slave codes and the laws in Savannah. And we look not only at just how enslaved people were restricted from going anywhere without a pass, even free blacks had to wear, had to have uh, a guardian. They had to have, uh, they had to pay, pay a fine for quote unquote good behavior. What, what is that? Like, how do you decide that? They had to wear a badge to go work in the city. They had to wear that on their clothing. They had to get permits for certain things. They could not stand in public for very long. So when you look at the laws governing both enslaved and free Black people, you can understand and see really clearly um, the restrictions that were placed upon people because of their status, class, race, and um, they were trying to marginalize them from society.
2: So, Donna, I think that's a, a perfect place to turn to uh, our, our concluding uh, question here. And we always like to conclude, as, as I think you know, on an optimistic mm-hmm. note, because I think you and I and Zachary and, and so many of us share a, a belief, maybe it's a faith, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> historical knowledge can allow us to improve, that that the the... the brilliant and, and many decades-long research you, you've summarized so beautifully for us here that, that it, it not only makes us smarter, but it allows us to improve our society. And do you believe and do you see evidence that as uh, especially a younger generation that's fortunate enough to be in the classroom with you and, and many teachers and other scholars who you've worked with, does knowledge of this important and often forgotten history, do, do you think it, it improves their understanding of democracy and, and helps to Im- improve our society as a whole?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think it's absolutely liberating. And what I mean by that is that once students, and even uh, K-12 educators, because I do a lot of online teaching through um, you know the Gilder Lehrman Institute. I'm, I just finished a class on the lives of the enslaved to over 100 teachers nationwide, and yeah, we spent the last uh, 10 weeks learning about slave rebellions, enslaved communities, culture, all kinds of things. And all of them have said it's enriched their classrooms. It's allowed them to understand American history better. It's taught the students in their class to to see and make connections to what's happening literally today, the protests that is going on today. So they understand the root of it. So um, I found that that teaching this history and the work that you do and the work that all of us in our department do is very helpful. And it's, it's, it can only enhance our education. It doesn't necessarily create a bunch of rebels. I think there's a, a fear of that. <laughs> but no, it creates a, a community of knowledge-seeking individuals who want to understand the realities of our past that can make, help them make sense of where we are today. And I think this is what we need to do. And this is why I love teaching.
2: Zachary, as 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 uh, someone who's been exposed to some of this through some excellent teachers you've had, and of course through knowing Dinah and being around a lot of historians, do, do you and do you find that among other people of your generation, other kids of your generation, is it liberating? Is it empowering?
0: I, I definitely think that 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 the ways in which that history is being taught. The, the fact that that's changing so much right now mm-hmm. is very li- is is very liberating in the sense that that young people really have a chance not just to absorb the, the 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 facts that were told from history textbooks but to really think and think critically about the way history is being taught to us i first learned about maroon societies in 10th grade world history which to me was absolutely shocking <laughs> that i had never encountered that history before and uh, i think that's why this history teaching is so important is because young people like myself, we, we don't actually get this history from a young age. I think it's not just powerful in the sense that we're learning this for the first time, but also in, in the sense that we actually get to think about why we haven't learned this before, why we haven't been told this story in past history classes.
2: And, and Zachary, do you find, as, as Dinah said so well, that it, it, it actually gives you a greater appreciation for democracy?
0: I think it definitely does. I think it, it also shows the ways in which African-American resistance to to oppression has shaped our democracy and the ways in which our democracy isn't simply shaped by a bunch of white men in, in a room signing a paper, but actually the forces of, of ordinary people and, and often the people at the very bottom of society. Right.
2: Right. Dinah, to, to close out this discussion, uh, what makes you most hopeful? I mean, you, you have spent so much of your life studying some of the, the worst horrors in our yeah. history, horrors that, that many people are embarrassed to, to even talk about. And then, of course, you recognize better than anyone, as you've described so well, uh, the co- continuities to the present. So what do you find most hopeful in this?
1: Well, I'm I'm hopeful just hearing that Zachary learned about Maroon communities in tenth grade, as opposed to in my college classroom when I when I talk about that. So I'm hopeful about the future. I'm hopeful about the younger generation. I remember a few years ago when there were school shootings, and there were kids that were young adults that were not of voting age were protesting and um, fighting against gun legislation. And I just I remember thinking I felt hopeful in them making statements about the future for them, you know, them talking about this is what I want my future to look like. So for me, I'm hopeful for a younger generation, a generation that's hungry to learn, a generation that's not afraid of difference, a generation that does not pass, necessarily pass judgment on resistance, but also understanding it and coming to into their own, thinking about what the democracy will look like for them.
2: I can't think of better words than those, Dinah. Thank you so much. I, I think what you've brought out for us so clearly and so eloquently are the ways in which a, a deeper understanding of the the nightmares from our past and the, the the horrors of our past can help us to better understand our present, but also to to see ways forward, to learn and improve, and and how ignorance uh, often basically reinforces some of the continued bad behavior that needs to change D- democracy is a continual learning process and and you bring such scholarly rigor but also um just such a hopeful attitude to, to this difficult uh, topic i really appreciate it thank you for joining us today
1: thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure
2: and zachary thank you of course for your uh, scene-setting poem and your thoughtful reflections and most of all thank you to our audience for joining this week of this is democracy